Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 87. Last week, I covered the altar of incense and got started on the priestly vestments, specifically covering the breastpiece. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing with the priestly vestments, beginning with the ephod and working through the rest of the uniform. And with that, let's get started. Before covering the other parts of the priest's wardrobe, a little background. Of these garments, four are worn exclusively by the high priest. These four are called the holy garments. The pieces worn by the other, lower priest, would not carry this title. After their manufacture, Moses would consecrate the priests and place the vestments on Aaron. And Aaron, as the high priest, would wear the vestments until just before his death. At that time, they would be transferred to the new high priest, in that case, Eliezer. And so it would go, holy garments passing from the dying high priest to the named successor. And given that the description of the vestments are placed between the two altars in the text, it's thought to indicate that the garments were considered part of the tabernacle, really part of the sacred equipment, and not belonging to the priest. Given many of the instructions for dressing and disrobing, it's clear they were intended to be used only for religious purposes. We're told that the high priest would only wear the uniform when he entered the sanctuary interior, which he did twice daily, in the morning and in the evening. Also, each piece of the high priest's vestment is said to function in a specific way whenever the high priest enters the sanctuary. More on that in a minute. The high priest's foregarments were not like the typical articles of clothing. Their design shows that they are not intended to function as protection from the elements, or intended to be humble or modest. And, given the gemstones I covered in the last episode, it's obvious they were valuable, since the clothing included gold and precious stones. On three of the pieces, there are inscriptions. And given all we know about the design, they were likely both heavy and uncomfortable, and certainly impractical for use outside of their religious purposes. But no priest, from the lowest all the way up the ladder to the high priest himself, was holy enough on their own to serve in the temple, unless he was wearing the sacred garments. This is explicitly laid out in the Talmud that asserts, while they are clothed in the priestly garments, they are clothed in the priesthood. But when they are not wearing the garments, the priesthood is not upon them. So, the clothing, among many other things, is what made a priest a priest. And without the vestments, the priests are very much the same as those who are not descended from Aaron, not fit for temple service. Then something even a bit more enlightening. The Hebrew word, which is commonly translated as either holy or sacred, also has a slightly different meaning, and that is best translated as garments of the temple. Overall, practicality wasn't the goal. Rabbinic writing proposes that God's instructions to Moses were in part to make the priest simultaneously dignified and beautiful, more so than earthly royalty, to be essentially his royalty. And there is a bit of this found in the Talmud, in a reference to an outside historic figure. In the Talmud is the story of an evil Persian king named Ahasuerus, 
references to him can be found in the books of Esther, Ezra, and Daniel. The name is also found in some versions of the book of Tobit, though it was in reference to an associate of King Nebuchadnezzar. Some researchers think that Ahasuerus may be one and the same as the Persian ruler Xerxes. Xerxes ruled between 486 and 485 BC. Others think he could have been either Artaxerxes I or II. Back in the Talmud, Ahasuerus celebrated with a feast for his advisors and officers. Apparently, the king was a bit insecure, or something, but either way, he sought to impress his underlings with his greatness. In order to facilitate this impression, he eschewed his normal royal clothing and instead donned the vestments of the Jewish high priest, presumably the same ones described in Exodus. These garments had come under the control of the Persians after the destruction of Solomon's temple by the Babylonians. Okay, so that's enough background. How about the rest of the clothing? First is the ephod, which was essentially a vest that the priest wore over their robes. According to Exodus, it was an elaborate garment worn by the high priest, placed underneath the breastplate. The text also tells us, quoting from the New Revised Standard Version, They shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and of fine twisted linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that they may be joined together. The decorated band on it shall be of the same workmanship and materials, of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and of fine twisted linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave them with the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a gem cutter engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall mount them in settings of gold filigree. Pausing for a second. Filigree is essentially ornamental wire, in this case used to hold the stone to the linen. More on that in a minute. Unpausing. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold, twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. End quote. Exodus chapter 39 provides some more detail. Gold leaf was hammered out and cut into threads to work into the blue, purple, and crimson yarns and into the fine twisted linen in skilled design. They made for the ephod shoulder pieces joined to it at its two edges. The decorated band on it was of the same materials and workmanship of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and of fine twisted linen, as the Lord had commanded Moses. End quote. So, it was woven from gold, blue, purple, and scarlet threads, all woven into fine linen. Then it was expertly embroidered with gold thread. The Talmud provides a more detailed description with each of the threads being combined into six larger threads which was then woven with a seventh thread of gold leaf. All totaled, there were 28 threads that would then be woven into the vest. The breastpiece was attached to the ephod via two gold rings and gold chains at the top. Some have described the ephod as akin to an apron, 
or a skirt with braces. Rashi, the 11th century French rabbinic writer, claimed that it resembled a woman's riding girdle, which I really can't envision, but it probably meant something in 11th century France. The account in Exodus then described the two onyx stones that were to be attached with gold thread to the shoulder pieces of the ephod, likely resembling a pullets found on many military uniforms. The stones were engraved with the twelve names of the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel. There is a debate, a debate that has raged for thousands of years, about the order of the names on the stones. A debate that rages despite the order being given as their birth order. I'm not wading into those muddy waters. These stones are sometimes called the stones of reminder, or remembrance. And, since they were worn by the high priest, he was said to personify the whole of the Israelite people a representative of the nation, and not just the Levites or any other tribe, similar to the stones of the breastpiece I covered in the last episode. There is a debate over what gems these two shoulder stones were. Jewish tradition holds that they were a heliodor, but like I mentioned, most modern translations, including all three used in this podcast, claim they were onyx. Heliodor is a type of barrel, usually with a yellow tint. In the book of Judges, in the 8th chapter, Gideon makes an ephod from gold, but it ended up bringing dishonor to the Israelites. The specific phrase used is that all Israel prostituted themselves to it, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Essentially the same phrase in all three translations used for this podcast, which doesn't sound like a positive thing. Later, in Judges, in chapter 17, Micah would make an ephod of silver along with a silver idol. He would then make one of his sons his priest. In the next paragraph, a Levite would come to live with Micah, and he became another priest to Micah, and introduced Micah to the religion of Abraham. In the 21st chapter of 1 Samuel, we're told that when the pre-king David went to Nob to meet with the priest Ahimelech, and took five loaves of the bread of the presence. He also asked the priest for a weapon. The priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none here except that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. End quote. Later in the narrative, in both 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, were told that David wore an ephod when he danced before the Ark of the Covenant. Some scholars interpret these passages in Samuel as meaning that whenever David, or earlier when Saul, wished to pose a question to God, they asked a priest for the ephod, donning it before their inquiry. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, David has the Ark brought to Jerusalem, while the ark was making its passage from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem, we're told that David, along with the Levites, were wearing fine linen clothing. But, in addition to the clothing, David also wore a linen ephod. So, at least in his case, and unlike the two passages in Judges, the ephod was cloth, not precious metal. And, the general implication in both the early Old Testament and the later, 
is that wearing the ephod carried with it strong ceremonial and religious implications. Finally, in the Talmud, the wearing of the ephod is said to have atoned for the sin of idolatry on the part of the children of Israel. And that's it for this priestly vestment. Next is the robe that was worn under the ephod, and therefore under the breastpiece. According to Exodus chapter 28, in the New Revised Standard Version, God told Moses to make the robe of the ephod all blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it, with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a coat of mail. Pausing for a second. Of course, a coat of mail is a type of armor, but the English translators of the original Hebrew used a bit of license here. There is uncertainty around the actual meaning of the Hebrew word. In the NIV, instead of the word male, the word collar is used. The King James uses the word whole. And the difference between the three words, male, collar, and whole, is very telling. Unpausing. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it, with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it may not be torn. On its lower hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and crimson yarns all around the lower hem, with bells of gold between them all around, a golden bell and a pomegranate alternating all around the lower hem of the robe. Aaron shall wear it when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he may not die. End quote. And about those bells around the helm, according to some sources, one of the reasons the robe is worn is for its bells, with the sound of these bells alerting God of the priest coming into the sanctuary, implying that the part of the text that reads, so he may not die, means that surprising God would have lethal consequences. I don't really agree with that thought, though. And I do recognize that it's merely my opinion, and I certainly don't understand everything. And having said that, I'm still wondering if it's possible to surprise God, especially merely walking up to Him. Anyway, moving along. I've also seen the theory that the bells served to demonstrate the priest was still alive. As he moved, the bells would ring, and everyone would know he hadn't been smited. And yes, I realize that smited isn't a word. I should actually be using the word smoked. But seriously, that sounds pretentious, and I plan on using smited until it becomes an official word. So, Microsoft, please stop with the little red squiggly under smited. And for some reason, I'm getting a bit of deja vu and may have uttered a similar diatribe at some point earlier. But, after about 600,000 plus words, some things do get forgotten. Which gets me to the next part of the vestment, the rosette. Sometimes, this is named as the diadem. The text tells us that it was a pure gold, and engraved on it, like the engraving of a signet, was the phrase, Holy to the Lord. God told Moses to fasten it onto the turban with a blue cord. It shall be on the front of the turban. Pausing for a second. Put a pin in the holy turban. I'll get to that in a second. Unpausing. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, 
and Aaron shall take on himself any guilt incurred in the holy offering that the Israelites consecrate as their sacred donations. It shall always be on his forehead, in order that they may find favor before the Lord. End quote. Chapter 39 tells us that it was tied to the turban with a blue cord. One of these cords went on top of the head and the other around the sides of the head at ear level. Overall, the diadem was to symbolize the removal of Israel's sins from the sanctuary and also to atone for the sin of arrogance. And diadems were not only found in early Judaism. The word originally referred to an embroidered white silk ribbon ending in a knot and two fringe strips that were frequently draped over the shoulders. Kings typically wore diadems as a symbol of authority, and they are known to have existed as early as 3000 BC, worn in that case by a priest-king in the Indus Valley of what is today India and Pakistan. But they weren't just for royalty. Diadems were also placed on ancient athletes after their victory. Think of the ancient Greek Olympics. Diadems eventually evolved from cloth ribbon to metal crowns, likely as early as ancient Egypt. Overall, the diadem merits few literal mentions in the Bible, at least mentions that literally referred to the purpose outlined in Exodus. There are a few references in the book of Revelation. A red dragon wearing seven diadems. A beast rising from the sea that was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and it had ten diadems on its horns and the rider on the white horse, who was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's certainly a sight to behold, and that's it for the Rosetta slash diadem. The next three parts of the vestment were so important that they only got one sentence in the text, at least in Exodus 28. These were a checkered tunic of fine linen, a turban of fine linen, and a sash embroidered with needlework. And then the underwear that was to reach from their hips to their thighs and cover their nakedness, like underwear is supposed to. Exodus 39 provides a little more detail where we're told that the tunics, turbans, and headdresses were woven from fine linen. 39 also gives a bit of detail about the underwear being a fine twisted linen. Finally, there was a sash of fine twisted linen and of blue, purple, and crimson yarns embroidered with needlework. I'll work through these one at a time. The tunic covered the entire body from the neck to the feet, with its sleeves reaching to the wrist. The one worn by the high priest was embroidered, and those worn by lower priests being plain fabric. But on the annual Day of Atonement, the high priest would wear a special tunic made of fine linen that was not embroidered so that he could enter the Holy of Holies. This tunic could only be used once, with a new one made each year. According to the Talmud, the tunic atoned for the children of Israel's sins of bloodshed. Next is the turban and the one worn by the high priest was larger than that one by the lower-ranking priest. The high priest's turban was wound so that it formed a broad, flat-topped turban 
said to resemble the blossom of a flower. Lower priests wore a cone-shaped turban called a migbahat. Both versions were made from fine linen. According to the Talmud, the donning of the turban atoned for the sins of haughtiness. Finally, there's the priestly sash, sometimes called the girdle, which may give away its function. It too was a fine white linen and embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet thread, except for the plain one worn on the Day of Atonement. In rabbinical literature, the sash was 32 cubits long and somewhere between 2, 3, or 4 fingers wide. So, 48 feet are just under 15 meters, and a couple of inches are 2.5 times as many centimeters wide. At this length, it would have been wound around the priest's body several times, either wound around just the waist, or perhaps around the waist and over the shoulders, crossing over the heart. Either way, the ends would have probably hung down in front of the priest. According to the Talmud, the wearing of the sash atoned for the Israelites' sins of the heart, meaning impure thoughts. And that's the priestly vestments, the uniform, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the ordination of priests. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.